Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you today. Great to be with you here in worship service, and uh, it's been a blessing. I appreciate so much the, the worship that we led in. It just reminds us of who we are in Jesus and the freedom we have in Jesus, and it's exactly uh, where the Lord has us in the Word this morning. So if you have your copy of the Word, as uh, Ali read earlier, turn to Romans chapter 6, if you would. And uh, we are starting again our journey through the book of Romans. Uh, most of you know that we started this back, uh, I think, in August of last year, going through this. And then, of course, we took some time to focus on uh, the aspect of generous living in November and also then into the Advent season. And now we are getting started again in Romans, and uh, this will take us through a number of weeks, and I think we'll be encouraged by what has been called this constitution of Christianity, because that's really what it is, the constitution of Christianity. And I'm excited for what the Lord has for us as we get uh, back into this passage in God's Word. Uh, as we do get back in, though, I think it's important for us just to remind ourselves a little bit of where we've been, and uh, so that we don't just do a deep dive back into Romans, but remind ourselves just a little bit of the journey that's led us here so far. And uh, I was thinking about how we might be able to outline uh, what we've learned in Romans so far, and where we are right now, and I've come up with these three points. If it's not my outline for today, but I, this has kind of helped me. If you look at Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, uh, I would call that, what a mess. <laughs> what a mess. Because in that passage, uh, we get to take a look in the mirror of who we are apart from the Lord and the, the sinfulness that's in our hearts, our desperate need, it is a real mess. Some very challenging verses of Scripture, God's truth, that are there in that, in that passage. That's chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 20. What a mess. But then it all changes. In chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 4, and it goes from what a mess to what a message. The message of the gospel, the good news. And what is the good news? That there is a righteousness from God that is granted to us freely in Christ by faith alone. Not what we do to build ourselves up to heaven, some kind of spiritual tower of Babel. That's what religion does. But the reality is heaven in Christ has come to us. <laughs> and he has brought us a righteousness by what he lived, how he lived, what he did on the cross for us, and his glorious resurrection and this is the good news, that we are made righteous with God apart from works through the free grace that is offered in Jesus Christ. Now, that's a message, right? That's a message. But now, 
In chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, we're, we've turned the corner a little bit, remind you where we are. This message is not just something that is, it's words. <laughs> it is a message that's words, but it's a message that's reality. It's true because it really is reality, and that is this miracle. So what a miracle. What a mess. What a message. But what a miracle is ours in Christ through union with him. Through union with Christ, we have security. Romans chapter 5, remember? Paul said, yes, where sin has abounded, grace what? Super abounds. And friends, I want to remind you that yes, it is true, even as believers, we are great sinners. But never forget, Jesus is a greater Savior than you are a sinner. And our hope is in Christ. And so we have this wonderful unity. And out of this unity with Christ, by faith, we are united with him. We are in Adam through birth. We're sinners. But through the new birth, we have a union with Christ. And we have a new identity. And that identity gives us freedom. And that's where we are this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6. And we're talking about freedom that's based on truth. Freedom that's based on truth. What did Jesus say? You shall know the truth, and what? The truth shall set you free. The truth in Jesus shall set you free. The reality is, we can never live beyond the truth that we believe. What we believe, we will eventually live out. Now, as I was reading this passage this week, thinking it over, I was reminded of a, an old movie, okay? And uh, I'm going to go here. It'll, it'll date me. I'll date myself this morning, but I don't have to tell a story to date myself. You can just look at me, okay? That, that dates me quite efficiently, okay? But back in 1971, there was a movie called Papillon. Papillon. Some of you old movie buffs may remember. It starred, starred Steve McQueen and uh, Dustin Hoffman. It's based on the autobiography of a man who was a, uh, wrongly convicted and sent to French Guiana to a, des uh, to a prison colony. And uh, he and some friends escaped they were recaptured. They were put in solitary confinement for years. And so in this movie, you see Papillon. That's his nickname of Steve McQueen, the actor, because Papillon is a word for butterfly, and he has this tattoo of a butterfly. But in this cell, he can only take four steps. He's in there for years, cut off from all interaction with people, and he can just take one, four steps. One, two, three, four, turn around. One, two, three, four. 
One, two, three, four. That's all he can walk is four steps. Well, as you can imagine, this is a horrible experience, lasts for years, causes all kinds of physical, psychological trauma for him. But finally, the day comes when the cell doors open. And he's told that he served his time in solitary. He can come out. And this is the scene. He is in rags. He's emaciated. He's pasty white from not being near the sun. And he starts to walk. And one, two, three, four. And then he can't move. He's frozen. He cannot take the fifth step. Why? Because for so long, he's only been able to walk four steps. The prison guard says, you're free. The door's open. But his mind is so trained as a prisoner, he can't take more than four steps. But finally, with the greatest effort, Papillon takes that fifth step <laughs> and then another step and he is wobbly. He's wobbly and he's hunched over and he can barely move, but he comes out of that cell. He starts walking and over a period of time, he regains his strength. He is sent to another penal colony where he reunites with Dustin Hoffman, his friend. But he determines he's going to be, get free. He makes a little self-made raft of coconuts and other things. And he throws himself into the surf. And the current carries him away. And it ends with him laughing. <laughs> this amazing laugh because now he's free. Dustin Hoffman his friend couldn't bring himself to do it, and he's still there watching him. Well, this is the reality. This man in solitary confinement was set free, but he couldn't walk in freedom because he's still a prisoner in his mind. And that is exactly what Paul is addressing here in this passage. We must understand our identity in Christ, understand our freedom in Christ, so we can walk in freedom. Not just words that we say, not as beautiful as they are, words on a screen that we sing, but we actually live as free people. Why? Because it's the truth. You will know the truth. Jesus said, I am the way that truth and the life and I've come to give you abundant life you're not a prisoner anymore if the son of man makes you free you are what free indeed now walk out this freedom wobbly yes step back yes fall on your face yes but keep on walking because you're a free person now, you have to think that way, and that's where Paul has us. And so this morning, what we're going to talk about for a few minutes is liberated logic. <laughs> liberated logic. And Paul here in these verses 
logically walks out for us the spiritual reality of our union with Christ, so our identity is in Christ, so we are free in Christ. Now, here's the outline we're going to use, and uh, whether we'll get through it or not, I'm not sure, but here's the outline. First of all, there's a rationalization we must reject. There's a rationalization we must reject. Secondly, there's a recognition we must accept And then there's a realization we must adopt. Verses 1 and 2, a rationalization we must reject. And a recognition we must accept that leads to a realization we must adopt. Okay, first of all, Paul shares a rationalization that we must reject. Now, Paul had made a wonderful, incredible statement back in chapter 5. Look at verse 20. He says, Now the law came to increase the trespass or the knowledge of our trespasses, but where sin increased, grace all the more. Grace all the more increased. Now, Paul already anticipates how people are going to argue with what he has just said, that grace makes you free, free over sin. God's grace is greater than sin. And he's already been slandered about this. If you look back at chapter 3, he says that there are people, verse number 8, who have maliciously slandered his teaching, saying this, well, since we are saved by grace, And grace is made greater by demonstrating its victory over sin. Then what should we do? Just sin all the more. (laughs) So that grace is all bigger. So if you're saved by grace and grace is stronger than sin, then sin more to make grace seem all the bigger. That is exactly what people were saying about Paul's message. And what was Paul's answer? He says this, verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Is it, this has been said about me? Is that what we're to do? Listen to his answer. By no means. The King James renders this, God forbid. By no means, how can we who died to sin live in it Any longer is the idea. How can we who have died to sin live in it? Now, what's Paul say about this idea? Hey, since grace is stronger than sin, just sin more to make grace bigger. Well, Paul is saying here, number one, it dishonors the God of grace. How can the God, the holy God of grace, make his salvation a permission for people to live in sin. How could a holy God be about that? So that message of, hey, let's just live it up because we have been saved. Let's make God's grace big by sinning big. That dishonors the God of grace, but also, listen, it dishonors the grace of God. It dishonors the grace of God. 
Because this is the whole purpose of God's grace. What's the purpose of God's grace? Verse 2. How shall we who have died to sin live in it? Jesus Christ did not die for our sins to leave us in those sins. He did not die and rise from the dead in order that Though we believe in him, we continue to live in bondage. This dishonors grace. This is a disgrace to grace. See, he says, notice, we have died to sin. Now, I want you to notice something. You've got to put your thinking caps on here because Paul is, he is, he is really, really carefully reasoning out this truth. Here's the truth. How can we who died to sin live in it? So if you are a believer in Jesus, what's your relation to sin? You have died to it. Now, the tense here of the verb is what's called the aorist tense. It means there's a point in time when you, as a believer in Jesus, died in relation to sin. When did that happen? When you believed in Christ and you were born again by God's grace, you were given new life. And in that moment, with reference to your former life and the power of sin, you died to that. You died to it. So what's happened? Chapter 5. We, are, we were in Adam as Adam sinned, we were in Adam. We died with Adam in his sin. We are union in union as human beings with Adam. But the Lord has sent a second Adam. And that second Adam is Jesus Christ. And those who believe in him are united with him so that in his death and resurrection, we have died to the old and we have new life in Christ. <laughs> This is the reality. We are united with Christ. Now, this is important. I want you to notice something, and you can read right over this. It's important to note that Paul says, we died to sin, singular, not sins. We died to sin, not sins. He's not talking about particular sins. When he says we died to sin, he's not thinking of a list of sins. He's saying we died to sin. We died to the principle of sin. We died to the power of sin. And if you look through this passage, ten times we are told that we have died to sin. Look at this. Verse 1 that we are going to continue in sin? No. By no means. Are we still going to live in sin? Verse 10. No. The body of sin brought to nothing. Verse 6. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Verse 6 again. Verse 7. One who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 10. The death he died. Jesus, he died to sin. Verse 11. So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you might obey it in its passions. Verse 
13 rather, do not present your members to sin. Verse 14, for sin shall have no dominion over you. Here's what Paul is saying. Be very clear on this. He's not saying when you become a Christian that you never sin. The Bible says what through John? If we say that we have no sin, we are what? We're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. We know that as Christians, we sin. But what Paul is talking about here is not sins that we carry out at times. But it's the power of sin. It's the principle of sin that's been broken in our lives. You see, here's what's happened by our union in Jesus. Jesus died for our sins, right? All of our sins on him were laid. Praise God, right? But the Bible says here, Jesus not only died for our sins, for our justification, he died to sin. That is, he said, it's, it is finished. I've had done with sin. I've taken care of this. That's broken. I have conquered it by my life. And this death I've died. So now we united in him. We are dead to that power of sin. Our sanctification is being worked out. Why? Because the Lord Jesus has broken that principle of sin in our life. We have died to sin. There's a great author pastor's name was James Boyce. And he said this. It was shocking when I read it, but he said it. He said he considered this to be the most important verse in the Bible for believers to understand. Verse 2. By no means, how can we who died to sin live in it? As long as we believe, Sin is stronger than Christ. And we might not put it that way. Sin is stronger than our Savior. Sin is stronger than we are. We're never going to live in freedom. Now, if it's true that Christians have died to sin... Here's the piercing question. How shall we any longer live in it? See, that's, that's a question from the first century for the 21st century. How shall we who have died to sin, the power of sin in Christ, how shall we continue to live in it? You know, some people today have the idea, reality, well, listen, you know, if I sin, God will forgive me. God will forgive me. I, I'm eternally secure. You know, it's not a big deal. I, I do what I want. You know, it, God will forgive me. Grace is there. And this very flippant attitude towards sin, this wrong understanding of grace really gives an indication that a person who thinks that way has never known the grace of God at all. Because when you know Christ and you've experienced Life in Him. No, you're not perfect. But something has happened to you. The things that you used to live for are not nearly as important anymore. 
And the things that you never really cared about, now they become central to your desires. What's happened? You have been born again. Christ has done a work in your life. And so Paul declares a believer has died to sin. Verse 2. Now he explains in verses 3 through 10, what does that mean? What does that mean? So there's a rationalization we've got to reject. Shall we live in sin? No. But now here is a recognition that we must accept. A recognition we must accept. Now in verses 3 through 10, three times Paul uses the phrase, no, K-N-O-W. Now look at this, verse 3. Do you not know? Verse 6. We know. Verse 9. We know. What do we know? Truth. What are the three great truths here? The aspects of truth that we are to know. It's so important. That we know these, we affirm these as truth in our mind because, friends, listen carefully. No, no believer will ever live beyond his thinking about his relationship or her relationship with Christ. No Christian will ever live beyond their level of understanding of their identity with Christ. And so each of these three truths is united by the theme of union with Christ in his death. Union with Christ in his death and also after his death, what? His resurrection. So here's the first truth to understand. Here's the first truth to accept. To recognize your union with Christ. Recognize your union with Christ. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now he is, remember what he's talking about, our union with Christ. Just as we were in Adam and Adam sinned, we died in Adam. So we who believe are in Christ. When Christ died, we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried with him. When he rose again, we rose again with him. Now, the symbol of that is baptism. The symbol is baptism. Why does the Lord say believers are to be baptized? It's not in order for them to be saved because a person does not have to be baptized to be saved. Who would be exhibit one of that truth? The Thief on the cross. <laughs> Today you will be with me in paradise. He couldn't be baptized. He couldn't do anything. But he believed in the Lord. Lord, remember me. 
But the New Testament teaching is people who have believed in Christ are to be baptized. Why? To save them? No, to identify themselves with him. It's the way you show people outwardly what you believe inwardly. When you are baptized, like our brother Joe Lapari was baptized last week, what was he saying? I believe Jesus died for me. He was buried for me. He rose again for me. And all that he did happened to me in him, and I have a new life. <laughs> That's what baptism is. Baptism is the symbol, the outward symbol of an inward reality. That's the reason, listen to me. If you have baptism before you have the reality, your baptism wasn't valid. <laughs> you need to be baptized as an expression of what has really happened. Here's what happened to me. When I was 10 years old, the Sunday school teacher said, Boys and girls, how many of you want to go to heaven? Well, hey, my hand went up. I didn't like the other option I'd heard about. And next thing I know, she's praying a little prayer for us. We're brought before the church. Asked by the pastor, if you, are you ashamed of Jesus? No, we're not ashamed of Jesus. Baptism scheduled. My mom and dad are happy. They don't know how to talk to me or disciple me about it. And then I'm baptized as a 10-year-old boy. Well, what happened? It was a, a moment, but all happened is I got wet. Because I didn't know the inward reality. But several years later, as an 18-year-old young man, when I knew that I needed Christ, Christ died for me, and he worked in my heart a deep repentance for my sins, and I trusted him, now I knew the new birth. <laughs> and then I was baptized because it was an expression of what I truly had experienced. But now listen carefully what I'm talking to you about. As important as baptism is, that the physical act of baptism is not what Paul's talking about here. Baptism is the shadow. It's the image, the shadow. The reality is Christ. And so what Paul is talking about here is if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, you have been united with him as your new Adam. <laughs> what he did on the cross, you, in the eyes of God, were in him. You died with him. You were buried with him. And when he came forward from that grave, you came forward with him. He is your representative. Your life is in him, <laughs> you see. That's the substance, the substance of the truth. We died with Christ. We were buried. Notice verse 5 says, we were planted together. You know what that word means there? Sumfutoi. It means grafted. That we, by our faith, what has happened is so true that Jesus is our life, and we have been grafted to him. What is it that Jesus said in John 15? I am the vine, and you are what? The branches. He is our life, and we are united to him. And we're so united to him that this is the reason we need to understand for our death with Christ, because we've been united with him. Verse 6 says this. 
we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That is the power, the rule, the reign of sin. Now, notice here. Paul says, we were united with Christ in what Christ did so that our old self might be crucified. Our old self might be crucified. The King James renders it, your old man. And that's not talking about your father, okay? Your, your old self, the old you, the old life, the old person that you were before Christ was crucified, nailed to the cross with him. That's what Paul is saying is the reality that you are so united with Christ that that old person was nailed to Christ, was nailed with Christ to the cross. For what purpose? Look next what he says. Verse 6, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Verse number 6 says it this way. Our old self, who we once were, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now the word brought to nothing here doesn't mean it's completely destroyed but it no longer has power and authority and rule. See what he's saying? The body of sin. What's the body of sin? Well, you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Your life, I love the way John Stott, a, a writer, teacher, shared it. He says, like your life now has two volumes. The first volume is what? Your life from the date of your birth until your faith, your B.C., volume one. Now you have a second volume. What's that? Your life after Christ as you've believed him, your A.D. Now you live in the A.D. and you have died to that power of sin because you were united with Christ. But now you still have this old body. And this old body, the body of sin here, doesn't mean this literal old body that's getting older and older. <laughs> you know, I, the other day I looked in the mirror and I was reminded what Paul said, the outer man is perishing <laughs> and the inner man's being renewed. And I, looked, I, I looked in the mirror and I felt like saying, hello, Dad. <laughs> but... The inner man's being renewed. Body of sin, what does that mean? You know what it means. There's a part of you that it's new. You have this new nature, but you've got this old brain. And those old tapes play there. And you're susceptible to those things that are in this world. Your brain, you see, you hear, you know. And there's so much in there that's not right yet okay thank God that's not always going to be the case right because when we're 
we go to be with the Lord, we get our new bodies, it includes this whole new system of thinking. But we've still got this old body. And we still have in it this principle of sin that's at work in our bodies. But now, here's what I want you to understand. It is no longer in charge. Yes, you still have in you a brain that's got lots of struggles, lots of old tapes, lots of things that you deal with. There's still the world, this old brain of ours, the devil. But we have a new life. And that's the life that we have in Christ. So that here's what's true. Look at verse 6. We are no longer enslaved to sin. (laughs) We have a new master. For one who has died has been set free. Yes, I struggle. You struggle with this old brain. But in Christ, you have a new master. You have a new central force that's in your life. That is the power of Christ who is in you. And the work of the Lord is to see that old brain of ours, that body of sin, as it's called here, weakened and weakened and weakened. And our life is more and more confirmed and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Spiritual formation. You know, many years ago, 1995, (laughs) I thought my wife had lost her mind for sure. Uh, I'm not going to say whether that's the only time, but I then, because we were looking for a house. We we, uh, adopted Ruth in 1988, and then our son Stephen from Romania in 1995. And that little house of ours was really, really getting smaller. We were looking for a place bigger where they could just grow up. And so Susan found the place. And it was bigger. (laughs) But inside, what a wreck. (laughs) Now it was a nice house, a big old house. And we lived there for 25 years. And I remember in uh, Thanksgiving week in 1995, we moved into this house. And I want to tell you, I about cried myself to sleep every night. What in the world have we done? But you know, with Susan's guidance, we started working on that house and slowly doing repairs. And that went over a period of time. We ended up living there 25 years. And I want to tell you, that became like uh, the house where we raised our children. It was like a kid's dream house. You know, downstairs, you know, they're playing down there, lots of room. You just open it up, throw some pizza down there once in a while, forget about them. You know, great parenting you can do there. What happened to that old house? Same old house, but new residents. And we started working on that old house, fixing it up. You know what happened to you the moment you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, trusted him, whether you know when it happened exactly or not, but you know you're trusting Christ. Here's what happens. You have a new resident in you. And he's working on you. 
He's the new principle. He's the new power. He's working in your life. And you are not who you used to be. And you're not all you're going to be. But the Lord is working in your life. Now, what's our biggest problem with this, church? We live by feelings rather than faith. Because here's what happens. We mess up and we all mess up. And what's immediately does the enemy say to you when you mess up? It didn't really work for you. Works for other people, didn't work for you. You see, the enemy has two lies. Listen to me. Satan has two lies. The first lie is this. You won't get caught. And once it happens, you have the second lie. You know what the second lie is? You can't get out. And they're both lies. They're both lies. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There is a greater power in the grace of God. Greater than sin. And you don't have to live in this feeling-oriented. But it's faith-oriented. Based on what? Truth. Truth. How do I know truth? What I feel? Do I create my own truth? Please do not adopt that foolishness of the world That people create their own individual truth. That's just making yourself your own God. There is a God of truth. What is truth? Truth is what he says. And there comes times, brothers and sisters, listen. I can read a passage of scripture and maybe I'm not feeling that. But I read it and God's saying it about me. But I'm not feeling it. So guess what? One of us is mistaken. Either God's mistaken or I'm mistaken. Now, who do you think's mistaken? That's the reason we base our faith on revealed truth. We're guided by truth. Why? Because this truth will set you what? Free. And where does the freedom have to come first? Right here. The freedom that says this. Yes, I'm a sinner, undeserving of anything but the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ died for me. He was buried. He rose again. I cling to him. And now I am more than a conqueror through him that loved me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, what? I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and did what? Gave himself for me. The results of our death with Christ. We recognize them, believe them. We act upon them. This leads to the third thing, and then I close, that I want you to see. The third challenge, Paul's first challenge, is a rationalization we must reject. How can we, who are dead to sin, live longer in it? We died with Christ. There's a recognition we must accept. As Christ died, I died in him. As he was buried, I was buried with him. He rose from the dead, I rose from the dead with him. This is the reality of my identity with Christ. 
Now there must be a realization that we adopt. We adopt that realization. We act upon it. Verses 11 to 14. So you must also consider yourself. See, here's the logic. The word here, consider, is legizomoi. Do you know, listen, we are six and a half chapters into Romans, and this is the first command Paul has given us. And it has to do with your thinking. You must consider yourself, verse 11, dead to sin, but what? Alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourselves as members as to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from the death to life and the, your members, the parts of your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin, this power of sin will no longer reign over you like king, for you are not under the rule of the law. You are under grace. Wow. What does this require? What is faith? It's a dis- Listen, faith is a decision based on facts. Don't ever let someone tell you that faith is a leap in the dark. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith steps out on the Word of God. Faith steps out upon truth and acts upon it. I love what someone said. You know what faith is? Faith is acting as if God is telling the truth. That you actually act in accordance, believing that God's telling the truth and I'm going to act upon that. Here's the truth. As a believer, I am dead to sin. I am determined to consider that true and act upon it. As a believer, I'm alive with Christ. I'm alive to God. I know that's true. I'm going to act upon it. There's a careful deliberation. I think this through in my mind. And then there's a constant determination to live it out. Notice what he says. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Make that consideration. Out of that, verse 12, stop letting sin reign in your body. Stop presenting your members, your body as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God. Now notice that word present. Again, it's aorist tense. Action. Act upon this. Literally, present yourself to God as His servant and your body to be used as an instrument of righteousness. Make this decision. Do it. It's got to be a determination. Based on facts. You know this time of year what happens in some of our, our professional sports. Some athletes become what? Free agents. You familiar with that? Free agents. Okay. 
New contract, new team, new head coach. Now imagine if someone's been a free agent, they get a new contract with another team, they're a member of that team, they have the jersey now for that team, they have a new head coach. Now imagine the old head coach calls up and says, I want you to training camp at 8 a.m. in the morning. Well, what's the reality? Hey, maybe you didn't read the papers. I'm a free agent. I signed with another team. I've got another head coach, and I've got another uniform. Don't call me again. What's the reality? The reality is, in Christ, we have a new head coach. We're part of a new team. When we're baptized, we put on the jersey. We show the colors. We identify ourselves. And when the old head coach calls up, you say, I don't have to follow your game plan anymore. You dedicate yourself once and for all. A careful decision brings liberation. Sin will not have dominion over here. Now listen, it doesn't mean you won't sin. You will sin. I sin. But it means that the guiding principle of your life will no longer be sin. Because you died to it in Christ. And now you are determined to live who you are in Christ. I was telling some of the guys on staff this week as we talked about this Sunday service and message. And I told them I remember this growing up. A friend of mine named Philip, we used to ramble around this old working class neighborhood we grew up in. We knew every alley, everything. We were into, you know, well, I was in much trouble, but I was with him and he's always in trouble. <laughs> so, and there was a lot of breaking and entering around our neighborhood. I, I wasn't involved in that because a lot of people had really mean dogs. Bad, mean dogs. And Phil and I are walking up an alley one time and this Dog charges out of the garage. He's a big old bulldog. And we take off running for all we're worth. And we look back and that bulldog is chained. And he can't get after us. Well then, you know, being the real tough 9 and 10 year olds we are, you know, we decided to just walk up that alley. And we found out how far that dog could come. And we actually make like a little line. And we'd stand by the other side of the line. <laughs> Here he comes. Oh, aren't we cool? Well, one time we walked up, past that line, <laughs> the dog came charging. And we saw him. He's not chained. And we take off running. But you know what that dog did? He ran right to that same spot and stopped. He had been choked so many times, he thought he was still chained. 
He didn't even know because he was still chained here. He's chained. Well, a few weeks after that, one evening, I was walking through the neighbor's yard. I look on the sidewalk, and guess what? There's that dog on the sidewalk. He figured out somehow, I don't know, he's free. And he sees me. <laughs> oh, man. He charges me, and I am running across those yards. He is right at my heels, snapping to my heels. And every, every time I took a step, it hit him in the jaws right here. And I'm screaming bloody murder, and the neighbors on their porches are laughing, you know. But that dog got free. And now he was a real threat. I want to tell you something. You'll never be a threat to the enemy until you're free right here. Because you are free. You're free in Christ. You're not chained. But you've got to believe that you're free and act upon it. Why? Because we're something special? No. You know why? In Christ alone. Amen? Christ alone. Now the team's going to come. We're going to sing. And I want you to bow your heads if you would with me, please. Friend, I'm going to tell you what James Boyce said about verse 2. It may be absolutely correct. It may be the most important verse in the Bible for Christians to know. But regardless of whether that is true or not, it might be that for someone here, it is the most important verse for you to know. That you truly come to understand and live upon the truth that you have died to sin and you are alive in Christ and you don't have to live any longer under that dominion because sin, that principle of sin, can't rule and reign over you because you have a new head coach. You're a member of a new team. You have a new playbook. You belong to Christ. Friend, today, if you've never seen the gospel this way, this is the gospel. It's to stop trying and start trusting in Jesus, our wonderful Savior. To stop trying to please Him and know that He is the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. And that all who come to Him by faith are received and become the children of God and are free, no more slaves, free sons and daughters. Oh, friend, trust Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And dear friend, believe the truth. As a Christian, believe the truth. Confess your sins. Turn from them, trusting in Jesus. But determine, I will live in the resurrected life of Christ because He is mine and I am His. Lord, thank You. Praise You. We don't understand and comprehend all this, but we stand on this truth. Help us to act upon this truth and live in this truth for the glory of Christ, I pray. And God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.